hypothetical for you. Yes. You're required to rob a train. Okay. How do you go about it? Well, first Five I'd seconds. watch the great four. Uh, three. I'd watch the great train two. robbery and take notes. <laughs> And just do that. I mean, that was the most successful train robbery of all time. So it's like, wow. I know it was, it was the greatest. Well, no, it was it was just a great one, not the, not necessarily the greatest. Why would we deviate from the plan? Exactly. I was thinking of a, I know nothing about trains, so I was thinking like a tiger kidnapping situation. Tiger kidnapping? Yeah. That's yeah, like you're gonna kidnap tiger. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's wherein you take uh, an employee and uh, blackmail or coerce them into. That's they call that a tiger kidnapping when that happens. Why? Uh, great question. I'll consult. That, consul- that sounds again. racist. <laughs> it does sound racist? Doesn't Just it? because the Chinese built the railroads, now it's called a tiger kidnapping. <laughs> I don't think so. No, it has nothing to do with. That doesn't it sound has nothing to do with to the Chinese building the railroads mm. uh, a century and a half ago. Mm. You're gonna look it up and you're gonna be surprised. I'll figure this out. Why do you want to rob a train? I don't know. Just something hypothetical to begin the show with. Okay. I mean, we could have done a million hypotheticals. I know, I just, that was the first one that popped up. Welcome to the Aspiring Snobs podcast. <laughs> I have a hypothetical for you. What is if it? you had to see four recent movies, what would they be? Well, I'll tell you, the one I'd really want to start with, the one I've been looking forward to all year, and a lot of young white males <laughs> between the ages of about 13 and 35 have been looking forward to all year, and that's the latest Christopher Nolan joint, Dunkirk. The enemy tanks have stopped. Why? Why waste precious tanks when they can pick us off from the air like fish in a barrel? There are 400,000 men on this beach. Dunkirk. Mm-hmm. Yay! Yeah. More Christopher Nolan movies. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Cards on the table, <laughs> as we love to do. Patented real-time John talk. <laughs> Patented real-time John talk. Yeah. I'm not one of these Christopher Nolan fanboys, okay? I'm not one of these people who wait in bated breath for his latest magnum opus, and I certainly don't think he's not above reproach, Well, because a lot of people think he's like, oh, God's gift to filmmakers. Well, I think that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, we know last week did. I talked about my, my Christian faith. I actually attend two churches. One is a Protestant church, 9 a.m. every Sunday. The other is the church of Christopher Nolan. I love him. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Look at this guy. <laughs> I love this man. Uh. And I'll follow him to the ends of the earth. But you're right. He's not above reproach. And that's mm-hmm. why I really wanted to explore Dunkirk because I'm thinking, like, what else could he possibly want or do in his career? I mean, his last movie, Interstellar, he literally remade his all-time favorite movie. 2001 a space odyssey in his own image like what more could you want um i could want a lot more because i hated that movie i, I thought it was so boring <laughs> so as a follow-up to that now that he's gone into space and the furthest reaches of the galaxy mm-hmm. i was worried he would just go for kind of oscar bait because he hasn't won that elusive oscar yet yeah and a few other worrying things like uh they announced uh, the release date before what the actual project was. <laughs> Warner Brothers <laughs> said, like, uh, our next Christopher Nolan joint will be coming out July 21st, 2017. We don't know what it is, but that's that's when Christopher Nolan's contractually obligated to deliver something. Okay. <laughs> so that worries me when you put the cart before the horse in that way. 
mm-hmm. and this would be more product than than art. Uh, but I'm happy to report that it's not that. But Dunkirk is a brilliant film, and one of the most brilliant films I've ever seen, and I adored it, just like all the other films of Christopher Nolan. John, what did you think? It is a very good film. If I had to sum it up in one word, uh, that word would be unrelenting. <laughs> That's true. Because this movie does not stop. No, it's a- it is just... It is just a constant stream of noise and sound and visuals. Really good visuals, mm-hmm. really good sounds, but it does not stop. And it shares the same problem with all Christopher Nolan movies, which is they're not populated by humans. <laughs> they're populated by exposition machines. Let me explain to you what is going on. Hang on. I have feelings. I, I, you I can levy, Yeah, you can levy that criticism in other movies. This movie's playing by slightly different rules, and I actually really wanted to parse this out with you because, again, you're you're one of these <laughs> you're one of these Christopher Nolan non-apologists. Mm-hmm. You can you can you can see the forest for the trees, whereas I cannot. <laughs> and you're right that uh, his movies are populated with people that will just expound on not only the plot but also their philosophies on life. Love is the most powerful force <laughs> in the universe. <laughs> That's that's kind of that's kind of power you can't buy. That's a power of fear. <laughs> I know that monologue from Tom Wilkinson in Batman Begins seems cheesy now, but I I love it. <laughs> so you're right; it is unrelenting. This is this movie's a whole set piece machine. Yeah, and you're right; it's not really populated by characters. But still, did you did you identify with them in these moments? Did you still like? Were you still invested in their survival? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean it's it. It's a war film, and so... Well, it's like a it's like a thriller set during World War II, particularly the Battle of Dunkirk. It's not, it's not a war film in the same way that, I don't know, like Saving Private Ryan's a war film. Yeah, exactly. I don't think it's, I don't think it's elucidating on the nature of war, really. So I, I, I hesitate to call it a war film. I, I think of it more as a thriller set during the war. But Exactly, because, and again, we don't even really get into the politics. No. And we don't even see the enemy. No, absolutely not. The only time you see Germans is at the very end when they go to capture Tom Hardy, which I guess we should probably explain the um, <laughs> structure of the movie because yeah. that's really the star of the film is the structure. Mm-hmm. There's three major plot lines. One takes place over a week, one takes place over a day, and one takes place over an hour. Yes, and they but they're all happening concurrently, mm-hmm. and for the climax, they all eventually meet up, mm-hmm. and um, it works. Mostly. I guess we should... Uh, it, it works mostly until the very end, because again, when it all meets up for the climax, that's when it gets really exciting. But then it continues, and then it kind of gets into... Uh, it feels a little bit ludicrous, because the soldiers that we met on the beach, they, they've they made it back to England. They're like days separated from the battlefield, but Tom Hardy is still landing his plane. Yeah, <laughs> it's I, a little yeah okay, so the timeline is a little is a little screwy. It's a little wonky. Yeah, and you already gave the game away that Tom Hardy survives. That's the other that's the other thing I wanted to mention is that, spoiler alert, Tom Hardy survives. And actually, pretty mm-hmm. much everybody survives. And this is actually the most nakedly sentimental and unchallenging film that Christopher Nolan's ever done, too. Not everybody lives. That's true. I guess we'll get into that yeah. when we get into the plot a little mm-hmm. bit more. But again, it's his most sen- sentimental and not really challenging film, I'd say. Mm, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Because again, it's just, it's all about capturing that moment and capturing that, you know, constant like bum, 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 fear. Yeah. So it's not really, again, like, I think my problem with Christopher Nolan films is that there are some films you watch, and the more you think about it, the more you like it. And then there are some films you watch, and the more you think about it, the more you hate it. 
with Christopher Nolan films, every time I watch them, my initial reaction is what I get. <laughs> you know, the more I ruminate on them, the more I think about them. The, the, like, again, my opinion never changes. It's like, what you see is what you get. Okay. And that's very true of this film. I'd say that's a mark of quality. Is that, <laughs> that is, <laughs> your Fair opinion enough. never deviates. I mean, I guess even so. on reflection, I mean, it, it maintains a level of quality. <laughs> mm-hmm. But getting back to this. No, and, yeah. and, 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 and I don't want to, you know, don't, don't get it twisted. I did enjoy this film. Mm-hmm. But again, I, I, it's, is it a revelatory piece of filmmaking? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into the specifics. So let's talk about Tom Hardy. He's a well. Pilot. Well, he's not really airline pilot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. No, so no, no. That, like, that, that, he's not the main. He's only in the movie ten minutes. I'd say. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, I would. I'd but rather get the, to the main. The main plot line is really what's called the mole. Which has multiple, okay, which has well, multiple hold on, meanings, hold on. which will... There's one thing I want to say about Tom Hardy. Yeah. His plot line was probably the weakest because I couldn't get into it. Because it's Tom Hardy, directed by Christopher Nolan, <laughs> on a plane, wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. And every time I saw him, I just wanted to hear, Now's not the time for fear. <laughs> that comes later. I thought I heard his voice. I thought he said, <laughs> I'm on him. <laughs> I could have swore I, he, bu- he busted out that Bane voice a, a few times. Take control, <laughs> take control of your plane, Collins. Collins, I heard it. <laughs> he sounded exactly the same. He wasn't putting on a, an affect when he voiced Bane. He was doing the exact no. same thing. No, that's Tom Hardy's real voice. <laughs> In any event, he's not. The, he's not the main. He's not the main focus of the story, though. Yeah, I'd say the main plot line takes place on the beach of Dunkirk. Yeah. It's called the Mole, which, as, as we'll find out, has multiple meanings. <laughs> because the, the Mole, uh, as I found out later, a Mole is actually that, those rock structures that go out to the, the beach to, that stretch out of the beach to basically direct the current. Yes. And it also refers to the main character who worms his way into a regiment to basically escape northern France and get back to the safety of England. Yes, he uh, steals a dead soldier's dog tags and uniform and basically sneaks his way into the regiment. Mm-hmm. Well, he, an English soldier played by Fionn Whitehead, and another soldier of unknown origin. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, and I will be honest, I got really confused with this plotline <laughs> because it involves three brunette skinny gentlemen who all look alike <laughs> that's true <laughs> and i got really confused who lived and who died <laughs> well also they never speak yeah that's also true. I, i'm gonna one say of them, yeah i'm gonna give the, i'm gonna give the movie credit this is that they can they communicate a lot of things visually without dialogue because you're right christopher nolan can be an exposition machine mm-hmm. and can have just characters just you know talk and talk and talk eternally <laughs> I really admired this this particular one, uh, this particular plot line for the for the lack of dialogue and the fact that everything's communicated visually. Um, mm-hmm. You're right; it is a little hard to differentiate them visually, the three characters visually. But what we could surmise is great, especially that first meeting that he has with the unknown soldier. Yeah, our our, our protagonist, I guess we'll say, Fionn Whitehead. Um, his name is never <laughs> revealed in the movie. It's Tommy in the credits, but nobody ever says him. <laughs> nobody ever calls him that. Exactly. But we see, like, just the just the way they they kind of gather around this dead soldier. He finds out the soldier is stealing his dog tags and his boots and his uniform and things like that. But they both agree on kind of survival and then team up. Well, yeah, because in the initial shot, we see this British soldier act kind of unheroically. He has a 
gun, but he it quickly jams, so he just kind of throws it away and runs. Yeah. And even when he gets behind kind of a safe allied lines, he kind of takes off immediately to the beach. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's one. So, th- well, that's one thing I want to square with you. Mm-hmm. So, in other movies, I might. So we learn we know nothing about this character. Again, we don't even know his name. We don't know he doesn't mm-hmm. have any backstory or anything like that. And I would normally uh, berate a movie for that. Not berate, but <laughs> I would normally criticize a movie for that. Yeah. Now, why why in this film do I actually appreciate it? Is the movie playing by different rules or something like that? And I wanted to square that with you. Well, I think it goes along with the thesis. The thesis of the movie is really kind of survival is paramount, mm-hmm. not essentially victory. Because, again, this is this is a movie about a retreat. Yeah. And that final shot, there's a final shot where the two characters are conversing on the train. And, you know, they feel like they're going to be returned to – they're going to return to England as pariahs. And then they see the newspaper clippings. They see the people, on, uh, like, along the train track kind of greeting them and giving them gifts. Because, again, it doesn't matter from where you came from. It, all that matters is that you got through alive. Okay. And, you know, it's not a retreat. It's an advancement to future victories yeah. <laughs> from behind. So well, yeah, also with the, the hindsight of history, we could say, oh, this was a monumental, mm-hmm. I guess, vict- uh, even though it looked like a, a monumental military disaster for England, mm-hmm. really the, the miraculous rescue of 300,000 soldiers from here really did save their war effort and really did. Exactly. It really did have an effect on the war, yeah. And it's a, it's a message about people coming together. Mm-hmm for the sanctity of life. And that comes to the fore in the last plot line we haven't talked about, which is Mark Rylance piloting his little yacht <laughs> across Dunkirk so he can pick up some soldiers. Yeah, with his son and his son's friend. Now, what's the friend's name again? I can't remember. What's the son's name? George. Or the friend's name. <laughs> Into war, George. <laughs> to war, George. George. Get the mask, George. To the platform, George. He says George every other line, and it freaking infuriated me. <laughs> Well, because, again, this being uh, Christopher Nolan's most sentimental film, mm-hmm. because George really wants to be useful. He, really, he wants to put his name in the paper. He feels like, yeah. even though he's only, what, 16, 17 years old, he feels he hasn't done anything mm-hmm. useful in his life. So he says, like, oh, if I do this, maybe they'll put me name in the paper. <laughs> and guess, guess what happens when characters open up the paper at the very end of the movie? He's in there, but not the way you would have hoped. No. Well, technically he is. I mean, the headline calls him a hero, but yeah. also it's an obituary. Spoiler alert. <laughs> oh. yeah. The call went out. We have to go to Dunkirk. Ready on the stern line. What are you doing? You know where we're going. Into war, George. I'll be useful, sir. One of ours. He's on me. I'm on him. do get the best performance in the movie during this plotline because Killian Murphy plays a soldier who is shell-shocked mm-hmm. and he gets picked up early on halfway to Dunkirk. And, and yeah, one of the most kind of surreal introductions. <laughs> I love his introduction because <laughs> it's just him alone on the stern of a sunken battleship. 
Exactly. He's just like, and even when the boat kind of approaches him, he doesn't like get up immediately. He doesn't seem terribly excited no. to like be rescued. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this is like the best performance in the movie because again, he's, you know, he's not just an exposition machine. He's acting. He's really fraught. He wants to get to safety. He's already experienced the worst you can experience. And he's just like, why, why, why are we going back? Why are we going back to Dunkirk? Let's go. Come on. Let's get to safety. Yeah, I, I, I would disagree there just because his, he doesn't really have an arc. I guess what, since mm. we're talking about the whole movie, um, what he does is, again, in the midst of this argument with the boat captain, played by Mark Rylance, mm-hmm. he, uh, there's a bit of a row. He smacks uh, George, and George George's head starts bleeding, and he dies. Yeah, George hits his head, and um, I mean, he doesn't die immediately, no. but you know, he eventually succumbs to his injuries. Yeah, and they never... And again, this is one of those... It's what it, it adds to the debate, like, should we keep going or should we turn around? Because, again, he needs medical attention. But it's like they have a job to do. Yeah. Stiff up a lip, boys. Let's go. <laughs> well, stiff up a lip. Whoa, George. Yeah. Let's stiff up a lip in that they never actually <laughs> reveal that Killian Murphy has killed George. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there, there's no kind of resolution there. At the very end, again, spoiler alert, it's all a happy ending. <laughs> Everyone except for poor George survives. Yeah. But he just kind of turns away without revealing that, yeah, he's George has died. Well, he's he's got enough on his plate psychologically. Yeah. That's, and I think that's why Mark Rylance kind of gives him like a nod, like you did the right thing. Well, that's why I think I also like Mark Rylance's performance a little bit more is because you see that conflict between uh, go, continuing forward to rescue soldiers in the north of France or turning back to either mm-hmm. get George medical attention or save this one soldier. Mm-hmm. And there's a little more agency behind it there. Yeah. Whereas Killian Murphy's character is kind of stuck. Uh, Mark Rylance's character is given more, just a little more agency and a little more to do and express those ideas through performance. Well, okay. And so, but also during this plot line, we also have the biggest tonal shift. <laughs> Which is? <laughs> because throughout the movie, you've got the, like I said, unrelenting score by Hans Zimmer. Mm-hmm. It's so unrelenting, it even has a ticking clock element to it. You can hear a second. Li- yeah, literal ticking clock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's this moment. Um, late in the film, where the planes are coming in, the bombers are coming in, they're about to attack Dunkirk again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you see Kenneth Branagh on the dock, and he's, like, closed his eyes. He's he's resigned himself to die. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, they look over and they see all the British ships, including Mark Rylance's boat, that have come to rescue all the soldiers. The music all of a sudden goes from, like, like it all of a sudden becomes it all of a sudden becomes a, yeah, it all of a sudden becomes a, a John Williams score and swells exactly and, yeah. it, it's it's a little ridiculous but I get why they did it yeah well this is we should probably explain again this movie's a set piece machine it's cut it's mm-hmm. it's filled of um what I call like oh god what now moments <laughs> <laughs> because you know they'll get to They'll get to a battleship, but it gets hit by a torpedo. Now all the lights yeah. are out in the dark, like and like, oh no! And now this ship is turning. Like what now? And <laughs> in spite of that, it never feels contrived until the very end, when all three of these kind of plot points converge. And suddenly, yeah, suddenly Mark Rylance knows how to um, a a German Luftwaffe plane is swooping in. He suddenly <laughs> knows how to like dodge <laughs> dodge their bullets or something because his son fought in the war. Yeah. <laughs> But again, it's like, did his son teach him how to do this? Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah, same with um, Tom Hardy. Uh, the big what now, <laughs> the big what now of his plot line is uh, his fuel gauge is broken. Yeah. And he's, he, and so also he's has a, his... yeah, he also has a debate, like, do I go after this bomber or do I go back to England to refuel? 
And of mm-hmm. course, making the heroic choice, goes after the bomber, his engine dies, but still there's like some final few moments where he can swoop in. He literally glides to <laughs> take out the last few <laughs> fighters. And I'm like, okay. By that, by that yeah. point, in spite of that contrivance, I, I bought into the, the magic of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the magic um, of the story, can we, can we talk about the final few shots here? Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> I don't think I loved him as much as you did. No, no, I was I <laughs> given was, the fact that it's movie magic. Yes, yeah, so I was completely enraptured at this point. Um, mm-hmm. Again, all these kind of happy endings. Fiona Whitehead is is reading uh, Churchill's quote uh, quote serve speech in reaction to the Dunkirk survival. I guess this miraculous evacuation. And um, <laughs> again, like what now? Uh, Tom Hardy's engine has died. He's gliding to the beach, but then his, his uh, landing gear won't won't move. <laughs> well, no, I don't think. And I even think that's, that's milked for it. yeah. Even that's milked for all of its dramatic potential until <laughs> yeah. Don't worry, kids. It, he survives. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then gets captured immediately. Yeah. But we do get that great shot. He lights his plane on fire before he uh, gets captured. Yeah. And we do get that nice shot. But then for the last second, we get we get one more quick insert of uh, Tommy reading the paper. And again, it's like half a second long, and yeah, it's like and, what? He and then like it cut a, to credits. Yeah, breathes a sigh of relief. I don't, I don't know if that was a mistake in their yeah. editing timeline, and they decided to keep it in. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I'm sure Christopher Nolan has a lot of questions to answer for that one. <laughs> it's the most curious, I guess, creative choice, and one is a very, a somewhat conventional movie. So, I mean, also even the opening credits crawl was also a little weird. The fact that it, it he has like a little paragraph set up, but we're still cutting in between scenes, and then the titles. Mm-hmm. So it's like we we read the first half, cut to something, and then the first half is still up. Then the second half comes in, and then we cut to something else, and then another portion comes in. And I don't know. It's a lot of yeah, the beginning and end, very weird kind of choices. But yeah. Whatever. That's all. And again, I wouldn't mind so much technically, except this is Christopher Nolan. <laughs> the one thing he's perfect at is technicality. Yeah. This was put together with mathematical precision. <laughs> Exactly. Emulating the shepherd tone of rising and falling this, action. This movie is a perfectly constructed clock. Yeah. All the gears fit together perfectly. Yeah. And, you know, you, uh, a broken clock is right twice a day. So. <laughs> but it's, it's not broken, movie. John. John, what's broken about it? No, no, no. It, nothing nothing besides the fact that, you know, automatons. <laughs> oh, no, George, you are dying. Let me fix you. No, Mike Rylance and Kenneth Branagh and the top flight cast do more to imbue it with that, right. that sentimental okay. flavor. So You're right. I'm happy it was so sentimental, yeah. That's why I put it up there with his, his best films, actually. Mm-hmm. And another reason why I don't like uh, Christopher Nolan so much is he uses the same stable of actors usually. Yeah. Which kind of take me out of the film a little bit, because then I'm not looking at the characters, I'm looking at the actors. Yeah. So it's nice to see a movie where Tom Hardy's in it, but he's got a mask the whole time. Mm-hmm. And... Michael Caine is in it, but you only hear his voice. Yeah. So, <laughs> did you recognize? I didn't actually recognize it. I recognized it. I, I recognized okay. it. Yeah. But overall, it's a great movie, one of the greatest of all time. So, thank you, John, for contributing <laughs> to this conversation. I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> I enjoyed it too, just not as much. Mm. Now we've talked about a f- film depicting a war from the past. Now let's talk about a film depicting a war that has yet to come. <laughs> I speak, of course, of war. Of the planet of the apes. <laughs> Who is child? I don't know. But she was you. 
She has no one else. We are not savages. Apes fight only to survive. Bad human kill apes. All, all dead now a long time. Long time. Bad humans. Soldier. This was this was number two in my most anticipated movies of the summer. Ooh. Yeah, because I I think I've been on record as one of the biggest fans of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> And so that's why I was interested in hearing your opinion of this movie, because this movie, despite having the same writer and director mm-hmm. and cast and story, um, is very different than Dawn. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't quite say story, because, um, I, okay, this, <laughs> again, I'll lay my cards on the table, John. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is a fine movie, okay. but not up to the level of the first two in this series with Andy Serkis as Caesar the Ape. I'm going to disagree with you on that one. What? I think this is slightly better than Dawn. What? Dawn is still a great movie, but here's why I liked War better. War is more focused on the world building, and it gets back to the satirical element that I thought was lacking in these Planet of the Apes movies. Oh, great satire. It's very, it's very on the nose. It's very on the nose. <laughs> But it gets back to that kind of like broader message, which Don really didn't have because Don was a very personal story. No, Don's message was there, but only mm-hmm. the smartest apes among us, myself included, <laughs> were able to register it. Were you looking at the symbols of water and fire? I was. <laughs> oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Look at you. Yep. Mm-hmm. There's still waterfalls in here. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> All right. It's very subtle, but you'll notice that the apes are captured. And they're used as slave labor. Mm-hmm. They're whipped. They're whipped, and they're treated yeah, like that's donkeys. Yeah, that's what I did. Yeah, that's what I didn't like. I, I missed. See, I love that. I love that. Uh, I thought oh, it was on the nose, was? but it was brilliantly on the nose. No. <laughs> and they're building a wall, of course. Thumbs down, thumbs down as to they that. play the Star Spangled Banner. I, yeah. <laughs> thumbs down to that. I didn't like how obvious it was. I, I miss the presence of. Um, there's still producers on the movie, but the first two movies were written by a uh, writing team, Rick Jaffa and Amanda Silver. And unfortunately, they did not. It looks like they did not contribute to the screenplay of this movie, and I think that's where it, it might have went wrong. I would, I, I must say, the first two movies in this series, or this mm-hmm. trilogy, I should say. Spoiler, spoiler alert: This is a trilogy. <laughs> well, technically, now it's the eighth yeah. movie. <laughs> uh, what I liked about the first two is how kind of straightforward they were, and they had one goal. So, mm-hmm. Rise of the Planet of the Apes is just about uh, an ape becoming disillusioned and breaking free of his prison. Mm-hmm. Dawn is about a, a psychological struggle between somebody who's more gracious to human their human combatants, another one who's more violent and aggressive towards them. Yeah, this one becomes a journey of revenge, becomes a prison drama, becomes a a, 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 a <laughs> escape thriller. Yeah, an escape thriller becomes a war with a battle between humans that's like all that only like took was set up like off screen and then like comes back yeah. in the final twenty minutes. Mm-hmm. That's my problem is, like, when you say world building, I actually hate world building. (laughs) What? Yeah, it's just just because it's a lot of, like, superfluous details and don't contribute enough to the story. And I'm speaking speaking particularly of, yeah, the fact that they they stumble upon a colony of humans that are actually outside of the human war effort. Mm -hmm. They're too radical. (laughs) They're called Alpha Omega. Yeah. And that doesn't really come to the story until, the, again, the final 20 minutes as a kind of do a sex machina. And then there well, is 
uh, the but again, the reason why I like that is because again, it gets back to the original message of Planet of the Apes. The message of Planet of the Apes is, oh, look at how the apes took over. It's no, look at how humans killed each other off, and the apes took over. No, but we've already seen that message in film before, John. <laughs> <laughs> let's look at let's look at new territory. How about that? Let's look at the no new territory no, this is in the new form territory. of Caesar it's versus just using Koba. the Planet of the Apes structure to tell that story again. No, 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 no. no. No, Caesar, the Caesar versus Koba, that that was that was something new and unique. I think mm. the fact that the, yeah, the, I, the fact look, that the protagonist I, I, and antagonist are both apes. And I'm the not gonna are I'm not gonna shit on Dawn of the Planet of the Apes because obviously that's a great movie. Yeah. But it's like I like this one more. I thought and, this one was more fun. Again, I think you're out of your mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, let's, again, get to, how much, about, let's get to the fun. The fun being uh, the introduction of a new character named Bad Ape, played by Steve Zahn. The brilliant Steve Zahn. Yeah. <laughs> is that what you mean? And, is that yeah? Is that what you meant by and, fun? Yes. Okay. And also, again, going with the world building, he's the first ape outside this colony who's shown intelligence, and proves that this virus has spread not just to this current ape colony, but around the world. Okay. It's not just affected the humans, but also the apes. Yeah. So now all apes on the planet are actually super intelligent. And also, he's the first ape we've seen wear clothing. <laughs> That's true. That is adorable. <laughs> the best shot in the movie is they're, uh, they've decided to go attack the base despite um, his protests. Mm -hmm. Bad Ape does not want to be involved in these humans. Yeah. So he eventually relents. And when he greets them, he's wearing his little puffy vest and his hat, and he just gives them a thumbs up and a big smile. <laughs> like, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't exactly jibe with the, the gray on brown on black color palette of the movie. <laughs> I guess the tone is a little too heavy for that kind of silliness, but yeah, I, mm -hmm. I do appreciate that they had a little comic relief in there. But yeah, I when you, like going back to your world building point, yeah, mm -hmm. that felt like a like Avengers movie stuff to me. Like, oh, we're setting up future future movies. Well, it's also this is a prequel, and it's meant to set up a movie that from 1968. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel like you didn't. I feel like we could completely diverge on that. I feel like with the first film, we already did that because the cause of human extinction is not nuclear war, which I believe is what it was in the 1968 film. Instead, it's a it's a disease. It's the simian flu. Mm -hmm. And so I was yeah. hoping that would continue in that direction. Instead, it, we're drawn back to what we know and what's familiar with not only, again, like you said, the conflict of it's humans killing humans, but also this disease that takes away their voice. Yeah. Going back to the original movie, humans can't speak anymore. Mm -hmm. So again, we need an explanation to that. We don't, but so okay. it turns out. <laughs> well, again, it, it's a nice character setup for the Colonel, played by Woody Harrelson, because is it a nice his... character setup though? Yeah, I think it's nice because again, it, it's, it's well, we should probably part of the reason. Part of the reason for the uh, evolved simian flu is why he became so radicalized. Yeah, it... his son came down with it. He decided to separate his group from the rest of the army mm -hmm. so that they wouldn't get infected. He was afraid that they weren't going to deal with it in the proper way. He eventually kills his own son because he's infected. And, spoiler alert, <laughs> the colonel gets infected himself. Yeah, but then he doesn't... He's kind of resigned to his own fate at that point. I wish... And that's what makes it brilliant. No. Because Caesar doesn't need to take revenge. I don't know. No, I, I wish there was still some like push and pull between them. Instead, it's just a diffuse. It's just a complete diffusion of the tension. Instead, that's what I found. No, to be. no. I thought all their meetings were great. Okay. No, I, I, I didn't all their like those either. Were awesome. Maybe it's so emotional. 
No, not as emotional as Gary Oldman looking at pictures of his kids. Maybe, yeah, maybe it's, the, maybe it's the fact that, again, Woody Harrelson, God bless him, is a, is a teddy bear of a person and not can doesn't do menace very well. That is true. Yeah, so I didn't yeah. I didn't really buy the performance. There's another human character who is initially saved by Caesar. Yeah. And that's kind of a missed then, opportunity there because his, he, he doesn't come back in the plot all that much. Although he no, does. He's, he's there physically, but... Well, you think he's going to be a sympathetic character. Yeah. Because, again, the look on his face the whole movie is like, are we doing the right thing? Yeah. <laughs> and, and then he yeah, gets blown and up. Showing, yeah. <laughs> and he was shown mercy for the apes, so you think he's conflicted in that way. Instead, he just gets blown up. <laughs> yeah. He gets blown up at the end by... Uh, uh, does that gorilla have a name? Because the whole time I was calling him Uncle Tom. I just... <laughs> oh, whoa. <laughs> his name... A, his name is Donkey. They call him Donkey. And B, I guess that's another missed opportunity. A, there was a missed opportunity with that character. And B, if you're gonna, if you're gonna go f- forward with the slave metaphor, be A, racist. <laughs> Side no- sidebar, racist. <laughs> Again, comparing black people to to apes. Thank you. But if you're gonna go with that slave metaphor, I don't know, go go further with it or something. Actually, mm. how about how about include a black character in the movie? <laughs> they did. That guy was black. What guy? The sympathetic human. No, he wasn't. Yeah, he was. No, he was. He was a person of color. No, he was like. No, he was college pamphlet diverse. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah. Wow, now who's racist? <laughs> college pamphlet diverse. <laughs> and then by he was he was off white. <laughs> How dare you? I'll look up that actor. We'll look up that actor and find out for sure. you say eventually you'd replace us that's the law of nature so what would you have done what did the humans promise you no matter what you do you'll never be one of them you are we are the beginning apes together we are the beginning! Apes together! Strong! Have you come to save your apes? I came for you. I'm not gonna lie, the movie is a little overstuffed, but I love it when a movie's overstuffed because I think it's admirable for a movie to try to give us too much than too little. Mm, I disagree. Okay. Again, I got a great final results, and yeah, don't don't give me eighteen. I'm gonna use that food metaphor again because it's almost lunchtime. <laughs> don't give me don't give me eighteen plates of mediocre food. Just give me one solid meal. Well, okay. And the other reason why I appreciated those kind of satirical elements and stuff like that is because going into this movie, I was afraid it was going to be Logan 2.0. That's true. Again, they're yeah, both, we're, we're, they're both Fox properties. They're both like, oh, the dark exploration of this initially cheesy, fun—not fun, but you know, yeah. cheesy er- relic from the '60s. Yeah, let's say let's say kitschy, I guess. Exactly, kitschy. So I was afraid it was going to be a little too morose. Yeah. But again, you have the element of bad ape. You have those kind of again on the nose 
elements like the apes getting whipped, building a wall. <laughs> um, so yeah, I appreciated it for that. See, I I didn't. I know we're kind of reaching a natural endpoint with the Caesar character. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely at this point. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, spoiler alert: Caesar dies yeah. at the end. Which I I didn't like story wise because first he again while we're explaining the whole movie. <laughs> first he runs up a tree to first he gets shot by an arrow mm-hmm. then he runs up a tree to escape an avalanche then they journey to the safe haven and then he decides okay now's the most dramatic moment for me to pass on <laughs> <laughs> well again it's going back to the whole uh caesar as moses for the apes metaphor he literally takes them across the desert and again this is meant to be a prequel to the planet of the apes how do the apes end up in the desert this is how they end up there okay yeah. I, again, I, did, I didn't need all those connections to the old. Let's move on. How about contributing something new? <laughs> I mean, technically, we call this a prequel. Really, it's a semi-remake of Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. Yeah. If you really want to go into the history of it all. Yeah, which, again, disappointed me. I wish, again, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes takes it a whole new direction, and I wish it kind of stayed there. Mm. But instead, it got roped back to the, the whole franchise expectations and things like that, so... Well, you know they're going to eventually make another one. Well, yeah. So, Again, without, yeah, Caesar, without but, Andy Serkis, unfortunately, but, you know. Well, he could play somebody else. <laughs> That's true. That's the beauty of mocap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, all right, I'm glad you liked it. How about this? I'm glad you liked it, even though you're oh, thanks. patently wrong. <laughs> this is not a superior <laughs> film to Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Go watch Dawn of the Planet of the Apes again. I met you halfway with Dunkirk. You can at least meet me halfway with War of the Planet of the Apes. Mm, no, I'm not that magnanimous. Okay, fine. You're wrong. Well, I have another movie for you. Whoa, what? That you don't need to, that you don't need to meet me halfway on. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I haven't seen it, and based on your thoughts here, it sounds like I don't need to see it. I saw Valyrian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Oh, it's been spending most our lives living in a gangster paradise. <laughs> Oh, if only that mo- this movie had that kind of energy. <laughs> <laughs> if only it had the energy bu- that it had behind the ads for it. <laughs> yes. Okay, so you'll notice the marketing of the movie really focused on the spectacle. Yeah. Really focused on the set design and the creature effects and the wish-wash, whoosh, like, big set pieces. Mm-hmm. And there's a very specific reason for that. <laughs> because whenever the characters open their mouths... In the back of my head, I'm going, oh, no. <laughs> the movie's coming to a screeching halt, it sounds like. <laughs> yes. Um, so this is based on a old French graphic novel series, or not graphic novel, comic series. Yeah, I believe from the 60s, too. So this is a bit yeah. of 60s kitsch coming back. <laughs> the 60s are coming back. Yeah. The I thought often the 90s undiscussed, Yeah. The often <laughs> undiscussed and unexplored 1960s. Yes, so uh, called Valerian and Laureline. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the man's really the only important character, so now it's just Valerian. Great. Thanks. Where's the SJWs all over this movie? <laughs> Laureline wouldn't fit on the queue. <laughs> Doesn't roll off the tongue. Exactly. Drop the the. <laughs> Much cleaner. Well, yeah, that's what I can square is, yeah, they cut out a in Laureline from the title, but they kept the city of a thousand planets. <laughs> Which isn't even... It's, Which it's doesn't clarify ki- anything. No, it does not. <laughs> it's the setting of the story, but it really has nothing to do with the plot. It's not like the city of a thousand planets is, like, in danger. Okay. Or at least they kind of imply that it's in danger, and it's really not. Mm. Because the plot is, well, dumb, but... 
the, the plot is basically just there's a evil government guy who's involved in this conspiracy involving this uh, race of aliens that are like the Navi meets sea monkeys. Okay. Yeah, and so basically he's just been covering up malfeasance. Yeah, so that's the big macro plot. But right. The plot is very video game-esque, which is they basically have one goal that they need to achieve. They need to recapture this evil military guy played by Clive Owen. Mm-hmm. But they keep running into these kind of like fetch quests and side plots that they need to solve first. Okay. So it's like at one point Valerian goes missing. Well, Loralee needs to find Valerian. How does she do that? Well, obviously she needs to go to the ocean of the City of a Thousand Planets and find a Cortex jellyfish so it can read her mind and read her memories so she, the Cortex jellyfish can locate Valerian <laughs> off the grid. Duh. <laughs> and how long does this take in our two and a half hour movie? I'd say it takes about 10 to 20 minutes. Okay. But then you get the big set piece with the sea monsters. Oh, I so see. So it's important. It's I see. important. I see. Yeah. And but the two leads are not very good. <laughs> I, I feel bad criticizing actors because they work so hard. Yeah. But. Well, I've seen, uh, I know one of them is Dane DeHaan, and I've seen him in a lot of uh, independent American independent movies, and he's pretty good. But uh, not not in this movie. Not in this, so okay. in this movie. He's he's very uh, Keanu Reeves. Okay. Well, he's got so enormous, come on, he's, he's he's giving like a surfer affect to it. Okay. And he's got these enormous bags under his eyes. Yeah. What's that it's about? Just, I don't know. Well, okay. So the core problem of the movie is that Valerian Lorelane are supposed to have this like James Bond Monty Penny relationship. Mm-hmm. He's like a philanderer, but really he holds a torch for Loreline, but she's not buying it. She's like, oh, I, say, I bet you say I love you to all the women. You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, at one point she even brings up a computerized list of all the women he's banged. <laughs> I, they call it his playlist. <laughs> I guess it's the future version of the little black book. Yeah, I don't know. I, <laughs> I've and got a few other had... names for it. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and like the dialogue's meant to be like this his girl Friday esque like witty banter back and forth, but they just don't sell it. Okay, so they don't have the chemistry. I get no that no. that seems like the, the one of the biggest movie's biggest problems. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That I mean, that and the you, it sounds like the plotting is just all over the place and yeah, but spectacle wise, it is quite engrossing. Okay, again, going back to that whole theme of world building, it is quite a spectacle behold and there are a few set pieces that do have quite a bit of imagination um the earliest set piece is they go to an interdimensional marketplace like this bazaar Mm -hmm. but to avoid um thievery the bazaar is actually in another dimension so you have like you have a computerized avatar that actually explores the market and once you buy everything you need you go to like this airport security section that transports it back to your dimension so you can actually collect your stuff Okay. And so the early set piece, they need to get something from this bazaar, but like Valerian is stuck in between the two worlds. Like his hand is still in the ultimate dimension in the bazaar. So he has to kind of like run through and figure out how to escape. Okay. It's actually really clever. All right. Yeah. So there are some clever set pieces, but again, it's like, it's a torturous plot. There's no chemistry. The dialogue is just atrocious. <laughs> so. Yeah. John, what are you saying about French people trying to write dialogue in English? <laughs> are you saying it doesn't work? No. Well, apparently, yeah. They, like, this is, I did read that this is a direct translation from the comics that it is based on. So it just, it sounds oh, very. Oh, perfect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Great. Perfect. Yeah. 
But I, and then, I can think of a few better ideas than taking 50-year-old material and, and transferring it to a whole other medium without changes. <laughs> and again, this is a Luc Besson film. And is it? <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> and yeah, he shows a lot of imagination, but at the same time, he also doesn't know how to end a movie. Oh, really? This has the same problem that Lucy had. I don't know if you've ever seen Lucy. I haven't seen Lucy. Okay, so Lucy is a story of a woman who gets 100% of her brain, which obviously means she can travel through time and alter matter at her will. Yep. How do we climax with this movie? Uh, I got it. A shootout between French police and Korean gangsters. <laughs> That's the best way to end this movie, right? <laughs> with a girl who can literally do anything, let's end it with a shootout. Mm -hmm. And so in this movie, you have giant sea monsters and an interdimensional bazaar. How do we end it? I got it. Valerian shoots a bunch of robots. Great. <laughs> Perfect. He's a John Woo fan. What can we say? <laughs> I didn't see any alien doves, though. That would have been cool. Yeah. <laughs> it only goes so far. John, he knows when to restrain himself is the thing. <laughs> that's, that's a pleasant way to put it. There yeah. you go. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear that disappointment. It's, again, there's still some bright spots, but I can't mm, okay. give it a hearty recommendation. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Uh, you know what I can't give a hearty recommendation to? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, again, not, not, not terrible, but, you know, it's an how about an interesting experience at the movies? Okay. I saw the new David Lowry film, A Ghost Story. Oh, no. Yes. I hate horror movies, Greg. <laughs> it sounds spooky. <laughs> or to give it its proper title, A g g g Ghost Story. <laughs> No, John, this is not a horror movie. This is a meditation on the nature of grief and our place in the universe and the nature of time and all that, all kind of stuffed within a little 90-minute fantasy about a husband who watches his wife after he passes on. Brought to you by the director of Pete's Dragon. Yes. <laughs> and don't forget, Eighth Body Saints, John. Of course. He's, of course. he's, got, a, he's got an eclectic catalog, this guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, this movie was like shot for under a million dollars too, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, oh we'll get to that. <laughs> and it shows. <laughs> it, it does show because um, straight straight off the bat, it's very slow. Mm -hmm. I was worried this was going to be this year's version of Meek's Cut Off. Oh. Now you and I know what. Don't that bring mean. that movie up. Yeah. <laughs> you and I know what that means. Let me let me explain for the benefit of the audience. Meek's Cut Off mm -hmm. uh, was a little independent movie released about five six years ago. That all the critics loved. Um, it was about a survival story of a little wagon train going through the deserts of Oregon um, in the 1830s or something like that. And so, John, you and I skipped down to the theater. We went to the little independent theater. We went out of our way yes. to, go to, the, to go explore this art house fair. Yes. And instead, we got a ponderous, uh, slow, dull movie. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't end. It just stopped. It, it went nowhere. Yeah, they it were just, like, yeah. The, all the critics described it as a slow boil, but you know, that ends ambiguously. <laughs> yes, it ends yeah. ambiguously. No, that implies <sighs> that it ends at all. Instead, it just throws up its shoulder. And just says, "We're out of money. Sorry." <laughs> and I was afraid that's that's what this movie was going to be because it starts off very slowly. There's there's a long scene wherein uh, we should uh, okay back to the beginning. <laughs> Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara play a married couple, but Casey Affleck dies. Mm -hmm. And so there's a very long scene where she's looking at him on the slab, and then he puts the cover over him, and then two minutes pass, just a static wide shot of him on the slab, <laughs> and I'm just I'm just waiting. Okay, when is he going to sit up and reveal that he's the ghost? When is he going to sit up and reveal that he's the ghost? Two, minute, two minutes, two minutes. Okay, finally he sits up and <laughs> he's the ghost. <laughs> 
And the ghost is, again, very literal. It's a guy with a sheet with eye holes. Yeah, he looks like a Peanuts character. <laughs> <laughs> I got a rock. <laughs> no, that would be if he, if he had more holes. If he, oh, okay. if he didn't know You're where right. the eye holes go. so <laughs> And a big cloud of dust following him like Pigpen. Yeah. So the first 20 minutes or so of the movie is are these very long shots of, again, like him, he's now stuck in eternity, so you see him kind of experience eternity, including um, <laughs> the most bravura sequence wherein he watches his wife in her in a moment of grief, she consumes an entire pie. Wow. Yeah. That what takes, kind of pie? <laughs> that's the thing. I, I didn't know. I, I had to look at the trivia to, to reveal that it was a vegan chocolate pie. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And apparently uh, Rooney Mara has never had a pie because <laughs> this is what it's like to grow up in the, in the aristocratic Mara family. But any event. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, I was going to say how like I was thinking about this watching Dunkirk, like how much experiences actors get to experience. Like I'm sure to research Mark Rylance probably went on a boat and tried to like learn how to properly do everything, learned how to clap the jiggy or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> clap the jiggy. <laughs> That's a that's and a nautical you, term. And then you find out like Rooney Mara ate her first pie for this experience. Like what? <laughs> um, in any event, I I was I I was worried I wasn't going to stick with the movie, but what happens is she she moves on from the house that Casey Affleck's character is haunting. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to call them by their names because again, like like Dunkirk, we don't they never reveal their names. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because it's what it's the notes they're not playing. <laughs> well, I think in the credits, their credit is like C and M. Yeah, just, I don't okay. know. It, again, okay. their names are never mentioned. Um, but the movie picks up from here. She moves out of the house. Another family moves in. There, there are a few more moments where the, the subtext of the, or the ideas that the movie is, are, is exploring becomes text. Like uh, there's eventually a hipster party in the in the movie, and this guy has this long monologue about the and the nature of life and how it's impossible to leave a legacy. And so um, mm. he does, he does incl- do some hauntings as well. Okay. Most notably, a, a single mother of Latin descent. You know, kind of in line with the, the way that Casey Affleck treats women. Hey, oh, <laughs> wow! <laughs> that's our, that's your patented Casey Affleck burn for the for the episode. <laughs> and then he time travels. He goes back way back in the past, and there's there's a few more interesting experiences there. And then um, the main crux of the movie is that um, his wife leaves a note in the house before she moves out. Okay. And so that's his driving force is to try to get to this note that she's cramped in the crawl space and he can't he's scratching his way to get through. Okay. So that's and so there is there is a main driving force behind the plot. So in spite of in spite of that execrably slow <laughs> first 20 or minute, 30 minutes or so, it does pick up and become a, an interesting elucidation on uh, the nature of life and grieving and I don't know, uh, putting our mark on the world. So I mean, it sounds like it's fertile material for a short film. Yeah, Maybe yeah not I think you're like, right. Yeah, not like a 90-minute movie. No, and it kind of struggles to fill that 90 minutes, I think. Mm-hmm. Or 85 minutes or whatever it is. But <laughs> um, again, not bad. It all takes place in this single house in Texas. About 90% of it takes place there. I'd say the, the height of the production design is when he travels into the future. The house is torn down, and suddenly he's on the construction site, and he's in the kind of futuristic downtown. And so... Um, you know, it does take some interesting, you know, leaps and bounds here and there. So, okay, yeah. So I'd say if if you're if you have the stomach for art house fair like this, <laughs> definitely definitely give it a rent. I don't. I'd say you don't have to rush out to your local art house to see it. Okay, fair enough. Mm-hmm. Did you stay through the credits? Uh, I almost did. 
They they <laughs> must have lasted about thirty seconds or so. <laughs> they scroll by like the like the like the first half of the movie. It scrolls by very slowly. Okay. Yeah. Well, if you stay through the credits, you get a bonus scene where the mystery machine pulls up and they pull off the sheet and it goes, "It's old man Casey Affleck." <laughs> Damn it, if only I'd stayed for the end. <laughs> yep, it's setting up the whole Scooby-Doo mm-hmm. cinematic yeah, universe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> David Lowry's directing, yeah, the next three movies in the, <laughs> the Hanna-Barbera-verse. <laughs> well, first we need to set up the Harlem Globetrotters movie. Yep. <laughs> then we'll get to the Flintstones. Then uh, the Great Gazoo will connect us to the, the Jetsons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what tangled webs we weave. Yep. In the HBCU. (laughs) (laughs) We have fun. We have fun. Yeah. Do you want to know how people can have more fun? How? Uh, By following us on social media. Take us wherever you go. Not just... Exactly. Not just in podcast form, but also in social media. Follow us. Stalk us. Yes. On Twitter and Facebook, Mm -hmm. where you can find us at Aspiring Snobs. Yes. Send us messages. Creepy messages. Mm -hmm. Feel any kind of message. We want to be drowning in messages. <laughs> Give us recommendations and tell us what you think. Yeah. And then once you're done with that, you can go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe. You can go to Stitcher and subscribe mm-hmm. and maybe leave a review. Yeah. Maybe give us a little rating. Yeah. If we, you're so inclined. We appreciate the feedback. Mm-hmm. We do. We genuinely do. We do. As long as it's positive. Yeah. <laughs> That's not true. We're not... <laughs> We take all kinds of feedback, cause okay. especially the positive. We would appreciate some positive feedback. <laughs> God, we need it. <laughs> John, do you want to tell them what we're watching next week? Next week, we'll be exploring the Paul Thomas Anderson classic, mm-hmm. Magnolia. Yes, this is this is going to be yeah. This is going to be our month of uh, of of uh, eternal movies, <laughs> movies that last three hours or longer. Oh gosh. Yeah. John, we may have to talk about this later. <laughs> yes. Let's 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 look at our schedule, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> but until next week, keep aspiring.